0: So yesterday, I had the privilege of sitting down with Ronita Calra. She is a real estate agent. She started her career as Luis Ortiz's right hand. You may know Luis Ortiz from Million Dollar Listing. He has fantastic hair. Um, Her bio and her background are amazing, and her thoughts on where the real estate brokerage market is going um, were really eye-opening. This is a conversation that I was going to have about the real estate market generally. And it really turned into a conversation about people's backgrounds and what makes them right for a job and how to create value for someone going forward beyond 2018. It's a constant theme that I'm seeing uh, with a lot of real estate professionals that I'm talking to is a talk about value and a talk about being yourself as opposed to simply selling an image um, that you think people want to hear. So Renita and I cover everything from what the market would look like in 2018 to her job at Merrill where she um, saw something pretty traumatic that changed the, the way her career trajectory went, all the way to her working at Apple and some lessons learned in terms of sales and what people are like and how educated a consumer actually is in 2018. I love this talk. Um, it became truly one of my favorite conversations with a real estate broker, uh, and I hope you guys enjoy. Thanks. Hi, Renita. Hi. Thank you for joining me.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Um, so we were talking about uh, about kids just a minute ago. Yes, we were. Yeah, yeah. My first. Yeah, congratulations. Thank so you. So life's going to change drastically for you.
1: It's already changed. Okay. I'm good. bigger.
0: <laughs> you look great. And look I first.
1: sleep less. Thank you. I right. appreciate that.
0: Um, I'm interested in your background, your corporate background, actually. Can you tell me a little bit about where you came from, from in the corporate world?
1: Sure. Um, so when I graduated Rutgers University way back in 2009. I went to Rutgers. Really? 2003. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, are you a Jersey boy?
0: Uh, yes, but I don't say it publicly. <laughs> Not that there's
1: anything wrong with it. I, no, no. I wave the proud flag. Right. God bless you. God bless you. <laughs> I, graduated and it was a terrible time to get a job Um, and I majored in economics and I wanted to do something in finance but I didn't know what so I was interning at Merrill Lynch which is actually where I met my husband Um, and somebody threw themselves out the window when Lehman Brothers crashed and I saw the dead body and I decided that it wasn't for me. (laughs) Wow. So I was interning for a wealth manager, and that's when I was like, you know, I really learned a lot here. I learned how to cold call. Um, I learned about the markets. I learned about, you know, what happens when the market crashes. I kind of lived through it, which was really, really nice. Um, Well, nice for me to learn, but not nice for the world. Um, So from there, you know, I went a little bit on the sales side because I said, I don't feel comfortable asking people for their money when I just saw somebody jump out of a window. So I did uh, financial market research sales and I was selling a platform product where people would subscribe. Um, And it was a new company to the US. It was a British company, Business Monitor International. Um, And we started up their sales division. And I stayed there for three years, worked my way up and started managing people underneath me, really learned Basic sales 101, Um, picking up the phone and calling and, you know, how it's all a numbers game, and um, I learned a lot about marketing from them too. From there, I decided, you know what, after three years, I've really sensed what it feels like to work in a startup, and it's tough, um, and it's stressful, so I wanted to work for a big Fortune 500 company, Um, and I moved to Apple, where I was doing business sales, Um, And at Apple, I learned a lot about corporate structure and how, you know, such a successful company stays successful. Um, And I really learned a lot about marketing. I learned a lot about credibility, branding. Um, And at Apple, I was there for two years. Um, I was also in sales, and we were responsible for putting together people who used Apple technology and people who created apps Uh, for Apple technology. So I was more like a business consultant, which was really fun. I was putting together businesses um, and trying to help them expand their business by using creative tools. Um, After two years, I decided, you know, if I want to stay in sales and I'm breaking records for this Fortune 500 company and, you know, number one sales rep, I think that I'd rather do something for myself. Um, And I really... Thought about what it would be and where I would go. I went from selling research to actually selling equipment to being a consultant almost. Um, and it was actually my mom's suggestion, and she said, "Why don't you sell real estate?" She's like, wow. "If you're gonna sell something, uh, why not it be real estate?" And I thought, "Well, I'm in probably the best city in the world to do that, so why not?" So I took my uh, my license, which was fairly easy, and um, I decided go big or go home, and I reached out to somebody at Douglas Elliman that I knew, and I've been there ever since, five years.
0: So you came up, you graduated in 2009 during, essentially, what came closest to the Great Depression, right? Yeah. Of our time. Did that shape the way you looked at, and obviously you saw something traumatic, And did those things shape the way you looked at risk, and the way you looked at your life? Would Would that be accurate
1: to say? Definitely. I think, um, you know, when I graduated, a lot of my friends weren't getting the opportunities that they were looking for. And I thought, here's an opportunity. I can kind of take this and run with it. Um, It's vague enough where I'm not pigeonholing myself. For example, if I did do wealth management, then I would have that experience and it would be hard to switch over to another sort of industry. Whereas when you do sales, you kind of grab these skills that you take with you basically anywhere um, and in any industry. So I felt lucky that I had, you know, a job right out of school. Um, And so I thought to myself, well, this is, you know, not so much of a risky situation for me because some of my friends aren't even getting the jobs that they wanted. People aren't hiring. There was hiring freezes across the country. And in New York City, where everyone thought it would be so easy to get an entry-level job because we were willing to do anything at that point, it was difficult.
0: So when I started my practice, and it's something I discussed before, um, it was around 2006-2007, and I started it right out of law school, and I had no idea what I was doing at all. Mm -hmm. Um, And people would always ask me, weren't you scared? And you know, the fact was, yes, I was kind of scared, but at the same time I thought I was going to figure it out. Um, and that had to do with my background, I would say. My parents were immigrants. Um, I grew up in Brooklyn, and the people that I was around were big. Risk-takers is the wrong word. Probably hustlers is a good word, where they could figure out um, how things worked. Would you say that's an accurate sort of representation of the way you are and grew up?
1: Yeah, exactly the way I grew up. My parents came in the 80s um, with... No plans, and they just figured it out. And I saw them struggle for a long time. Um, we didn't buy our first house till I was 14. We rented and we moved a lot. And that was annoying for me because I had to make new friends all the time. Um, and I remember saying to myself, when I'm older, I'm not going to do this <laughs> to my kids. Um, but it taught me a lot because I was able to adapt to new environments quickly. Um, Lucky for me, I was able to make friends quickly. (laughs) But you know, my father owns his own business; he's in the garment business, and so my very tough. It's only getting harder. My entire life, I was sort of asked to help um, teach me how to use QuickBooks you know, now people want me to use the Excel sheets to send them invoices. Like, can you show me how to do that? And not that he's not technologically savvy, but I could just pick it up a lot quicker than he could and show it to him a lot faster. Um, And I heard my mom from a very young age cold call for my dad. Um, she actually ended up going back to school and getting a degree in computer science because it was like the Y2K movement, and she was smart enough to know that that's where she should be as an Indian in IT um, (laughs) to, to, you know, play up to the cliche, but she made the right choice because at the time, you know, having both parents in one business, as you know, like, there's ups and downs in, in owning your own business, and if they're both in it, then they're both going up and they're both going down, whereas now, you know, she decided when she wanted to have uh, my sister, that it would be better for one of the parents to have a solid income and a salary and a consistent paycheck, whereas I went my dad's route and uh, wanted to be my own boss.
0: So, um, and the background makes total sense. Talk to me about year one in real estate. Was it, what did you, what did you think when you first were coming in? And then how did that differ from what the reality actually was?
1: So when I was first getting started, I had heard and I had read uh, that we were in the height of the market, and we were in this sort of seven-year upward spiral spike, and I was excited because I was like, great time to get into the market. This is when you make money. On the the flip side, I also thought, well, who am I, and why is anybody going to give me their property to sell? Um, When the market's doing really, really well, it just means the top 1% are usually doing really, really well. So, you know, I I thought to myself, how do I position myself in this industry so that I'm surrounded by the top producers? Um, And when I joined Douglas Element, I spoke to my manager about joining a team, and he suggested I introduce myself to a few people in the office. Um, And lucky for me, one of those people, the last person I was introduced to was Luis Ortiz. And he happened to be on Million Dollar Listing New York. Um, What was funny was I had no idea we were the same age. But he had all of this experience under his belt and all of this success. And I thought to myself, wow, you know, we're the same age. Um, And he's killing it. So why can't I? Um, And at the beginning, the way he tells the story is much funnier than I do. But he rejected me maybe five times um, (laughs) before saying, okay, let's give this a shot. And I think my persistency is what paid off. Um, And in the beginning, now looking back, I think I kind of just thought to myself, what do I have to lose? I worked for a startup, I know what that's like. I worked for a Fortune 500, I know what that's like. If I wanted to go back to either of those, I could. I had the skill set. But let's just give this a shot. I mean, I have nothing to lose. I wasn't married at the time, and I thought, you know, it's kind of now or never.
0: Talk to me. Um, one segue that I, that I found really interesting when I found out that you work for Apple is um, because I, you know, I've always been a, a solo attorney or I've had a small firm. There's not a lot of culture in the firm itself, right, because there's so few people. And Apple always talks about a lot of these startups talking about fostering an appropriate culture for growth. Did you find any kind of um, comparison with Apple in terms of the way the culture was fostered, either Element or the team you worked with? Was that something that was proactively put together or was that kind of just every person for themselves?
1: I think that I really saw similarities between Apple and Element in the sense that they were such huge organizations and they were the best in their game. Um, so, Element right now still leading the market in sales and volume and production, um, and Apple has more money than the United States. Fair so, fair <laughs> well. um, so I do. I did see some similarities there. Um, luckily for me, what I did when I started my own team, which I guess we'll get to later, is I, you know, I took some of the culture that I learned from Apple. Um, and so much of what they teach you is customer service, and so much of our industry, uh, as I'm sure you know, is customer service, your industry as well. Yeah. So, I mean, that was very, very beneficial. In fact, when, we, when you get hired at Apple um, as a business sales um, consultant, you have to take a class which is taught by the people who run the Ritz-Carlton hotels, Um, And it's just about providing your peers with feedback, um, how to get comfortable with that, accepting feedback, acknowledging it, and sort of retaining the information and remembering it as you go on, Um, and how, you know, customer service is number one.
0: So let's get to your team for a second, because I, you know, whenever I... um, Look at agents, and I, I just did a talk yesterday at Elliman's office uh, on the tenth. And there was—they're great. And there was forty-five people in the room. And I thought to myself during this talk, how do these people differentiate themselves? Right? There's so many of—there's so many lawyers, and it's so hard for us to differentiate. But for you guys, it must be insanely difficult. I guess talk to me about how you do that, you specifically, and then what you look for in your team, how you developed your team, all that stuff, because. A lot of it these days is noise, right? We have so much information um, that's coming at us. And Leonard Steinberg, who I had before, sort of talked about that. And he said, look, my job is to cut down on that noise because there's so much happening. So how do you, again, differentiate and, and sort of start up a team?
1: I think, you know, the most important thing is to play on who you are. Like, everyone has their own story. Everyone has their own background, And and our business, my clients become my friends. And the people I'm friends with, I have something in common with. Um, A lot of the people that I'm doing business with are my generation. They're the millennials, they're first time homebuyers. I'm going to be a first time homebuyer this coming year after my baby comes. So I understand what they're going through. Obviously, I would love to deal with the super high-end luxuries clients, and I do. Um, And from time to time, you know, I get hired by sellers. For example, I have a a listing on the Upper East Side for $5 million, and she's a mom of three. And when I went on the pitch, all we talked about was my pregnancy. Um, And she just gave me advice. Um, And we had something to relate to. So although she's not my generation, you know, I asked her about the Upper East Side schools. I asked her about how she chose where her daughters would go. Um, And it was more of a conversation rather than me sort of selling myself. I obviously had to do that and provide value and show her that I knew what I was doing. But in a sense, you know, you kind of have to relate to your clients in that way. And I think when you come up with your brand, it really has to be true to who you are. It has to be genuine. It has to be authentic. I find that our brand and the way that I try and differentiate myself is that, you know, I come from a background where... I understand technology, and I understand that the way you can sell something today, you have to kind of be in tune with what's going on in technology. I've sold an apartment through Instagram. Um, and How cool is that, right? really cool. Really cool. And it was word of mouth. It was a picture. Somebody uh, direct messaged us and said, my dad is looking for something like this. They came and did the showing. They ended up buying something else, but he became our client. Because he came to that listing that he saw on my Instagram through his son.
0: And you spent zero dollars on that too. Zero
1: dollars. So, you know, understanding how to adapt to an ever-changing market and how to adapt to ever-changing marketing, um, I think is really important. And I'm trying to create a brand where, you know, it shows my audience that I understand that. And that I'm open to evolving.
0: Do you know what's interesting is that you have, um, based on what you said, a really deep background in sales and I like sales and really all most people do is sales in one way or the other but people don't sell well for the most part and so you know as an example you mentioned something saying I know who my market is and I, I know who I can connect with to a certain extent and when you can identify that I think you get a step forward and a step beyond what other people do because the worst thing you can possibly do is just constantly be someone you're not right um and I've seen that with successful brokers and su- successful agents because they're not, you know, selling a $30 million apartment in the Dakota, right, when to someone that maybe is not in your demographic and can't you can't relate to, relate to mm-hmm. and you start pitching them about something that they can see through, they're going to know this is a sales pitch right. versus actually identifying with the person that you deal with, right? right. Um, talk to me about how you use technology in your practice uh, a little bit and, and in terms of your brand. You mentioned millennials are, are some of the people that you work with, but like, how does that... Uh, talk to me about social media and things that you actually do
1: actively. Sure. Um, so I make sure that I'm consistently updating my social media with what's going on. And I think that, you know, a lot of people are against having one page and it being a business and personal separation. Um, but we're in the industry of relationships and and people that are going to work with me are going to work with me because they like me. Um, and (laughs) if they don't like me, they're probably not going to work with me. I mean, it's really that simple. So, you know, my Instagram is one page. Um, We do have a team page on Facebook, which, you know, we keep separate because I am a part of a ton of mom groups now who wouldn't want that on Facebook. (laughs) But, um, yeah, I mean, I think being consistent is key. Um, I've started to create neighborhood videos, which aren't – To sell any specific listing, it's just a quick three-minute video about a certain neighborhood. And what I've decided to do is put in a little bit of pop culture, um, a little bit of, you know, what restaurants are in the neighborhood. Things that I care about. When somebody takes me to the Lower East Side and tells me a fun fact, I don't forget it. And it's not because I want to live there or I'm going to buy there. It's just because it's a fun fact and I'm not going to forget it. So, in my videos, I talk about, you know, old movies that were filmed there, or why it's called that neighborhood, where the history comes from, um, and what restaurants are good to go to, because that's what I'm interested in. Okay. Um, and so, those videos, I think, have become really helpful in terms of, you know, I have a buyer that I that I meet tomorrow, and they ask me, you know, I... I really like the West Village, but I also really like Central Park South. And you're like, okay, let's narrow this down. Those are two great places to live, but very different. And here's why they're different. And, you know, here's the benefit of living in each. And there's no wrong answer. Um, so those neighborhood videos, obviously staying on top of my social media, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn.
0: Our um, buyers, because you, you brought up a good point, um, Are buyers more educated now than they were five years ago? Oh, of course.
1: I mean, they're the savviest people out there. And if they're a millennial, they know more than you do. They're going to
0: test the the crap out of you.
1: Right. I mean, they read Bloomberg every day. You know, they know what's happening. They understand where the market is. They're on StreetEasy before you're on StreetEasy. So they can see the listings. So sending them something from StreetEasy isn't providing value anymore. Um, you know, telling them about new developments that are about to come to the market is providing value. Telling them about projections or history of what's happened in New York is providing value. Things of that nature, I think, um, is where it's going to be most important going forward, especially, you know, to stay in this business because I think it's gonna. The market's changing and it's gonna weed out a lot of the.
0: You can say it. I don't know. Bullshit brokers. Totally, you can totally say it. So. Um, I agree with you wholeheartedly uh, on, on every point that you made, specifically the market turning. So December was crazy a little bit. January's been dead. January was dead. February, people are getting nervous. Right? I feel and it's, it. Yeah, and it's really easy on the way up for everybody. You know, New York's having this great year and everyone decides to become an agent and they're killing it. And on the way down, that's when you actually realize who's who and who's actually going to go to 20 open houses with you and who's going to actually remain by your side throughout this and going to know answers to these questions. Right. Um, going forward, then, if this market's a down market or if it stabilizes, whatever, how do you see I guess brokerage is surviving. I don't want to say surviving, but do you see them changing from the way that they actually are now? The relationship between the agent and the brokerage or even what, what brokers really do. Can you touch upon that going forward five years from now?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's already happening. And I think that, you know, like we said, the bullshit broker isn't going to survive. It's so easy to get your license in New York. I mean, my super has his license and he's literally said to me, I haven't sold anything, but I keep my license just in case. And I'm like... Right. Like, what? Yeah. What? So the number of agents in Manhattan is skewed because there's a million people, you know, including attorneys, who call themselves brokers because they did one deal because their sister bought a townhouse, you know, and they wanted to save that commission.
0: And we did nothing. And my, my sister should have bought something much better. Right. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Which, listen, good for you. I mean, I would do the same thing, I but... my sister bought a townhouse. <laughs> but reality is there's a ton of quote-unquote brokers out there that aren't active in the market. Um, And I think those people are going to have sort of a rude awakening because buyers, it's becoming a buyer's market. They know that, and they know that they have the upper hand if they walk into an open house somewhere and three people are interested and they don't have a broker and they're unrepresented, Um, especially when, you know, the seller's agent is hungry, needs to make a deal. That listing has been on the market for over six months, um, and they're hungry. So I think going forward, the relationship between broker and agent is going to be even more important. It's not going to be as easy. Um, and you're really going to have to build that trust. and You're really going to have to add value in ways that, you know, maybe you didn't have to three years ago. Um, I think the rental market, not that I'm that active in it, but I think, you know, with what's coming out in technology, I don't know if there's going to be a need for specific rental brokerages. Um, I can't
0: say that there will be. I mean, right, there's, it's gonna there's be a couple of so startups hard. that are coming up. Yeah, but it's incredibly hard because there's such flow. So there's, I would say a democratization of information, right? So you can get rental info from wherever you want. You can do your usual, go in and and juice the doorman and tell me if something's coming up. You can go all over the internet and find something. I mean, rental brokers are having an increasingly hard time. Not just that, but also the type of buyer, right, or the type of renter, I should say, Millennials aren't necessarily used to brokerage fees, right? Right. They don't want to pay for a rental broker because they're saying, what are you doing? You're just showing me five apartments. You're not, you know, providing anything. And I I think that, I think you're right. I think it tanks to a certain extent.
1: And rental concessions are the highest they've been in eight years. So if I have five options and four of them are no fee, why am I going to pay a fee? You know, I'd rather take the apartment that maybe is a little smaller than the one that I really want to save $5,000. Um, And I think, you know, on the flip side of that, it's going to be just as important for a selling agent and a buyer's broker to provide value because they understand that, okay, maybe the rental broker is going to be non-existent in a couple of years, but the reason that this business is going to last is because there are so many things that we do and we help with in terms of board packages, qualifying people that technology can't take over. At least for now.
0: I have to be honest with you. When I first started practicing, um, I had a blog post that uh, that I wrote. And I look back on a lot of the stuff that I write. And I go, what, what the hell was I doing? <laughs> um, and, and the post was essentially, like, there's no need for brokers. And in 10 years since, I realized how stupid I was. And it's not because you're sitting across from me, and I, I say this sincerely, uh-huh. but Most of the time when I represent buyers or sellers and there's no agent that's helping facilitate a walkthrough, that's helping facilitate contract negotiations, or I should say price negotiations, or that's dealing with any questions about the board package, it is a living nightmare, right? Specifically for first-time buyers who think that they get it because they can read information online but don't understand what it's like to submit a board package with six copies to a management company that just could care less. Right. Um, and and I think that the people that survive are going to be the ones you write that can, can actually communicate their value significantly better than the rest of them can.
1: Well, yeah. and a lot of what is written in the media is a generalization about real estate in the United or States. Shows. Right. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, New York is. It's own beast. I mean, there's nothing like it. Psychotic. You talk to somebody. You know, I have a client who owns three homes: one in Paris, one in London, one in San Francisco, and he's buying in New York. And he a- he's asking me basic questions, because in New York the answers are different than they are in the rest of the world. Um, he wants to buy a co-op because of the pricing and because of the pre-war details, but he's a foreign national, and explaining to him that it's not going to be that easy to get approved is insane to him, um, and, I, and I totally understand why, but you know, this is a completely different ball game, um, and in New York, every building is different, and it's the broker's responsibility to find out the rules and regulations of that building um, and the chances of your buyer being approved, Um, And it has nothing to do with how much money you have. And that's, I think, one of the biggest mistakes brokers make. I have a client, they're wealthy, this is going to be a piece of cake. You know, I like to say to them, and sometimes I say to the, the girls on my team, it could take three years until your wealthy client makes a decision. And it's not because of... Maybe it's lack of inventory, but, you know, a lot of times there are little nuances and quirks that they're going to find in these buildings, and they're going to decide, I don't want to live there.
0: How much of your job is psychology?
1: 99% of it.
0: Tell me about it. Because <laughs> I, I know what you're talking about, but I think people that, that are listening to, to this um, should know But I, I think a lot of what you guys do is really just managing
1: Oh, of course. I mean, this is a very emotional industry for everyone, for everyone involved. If you're selling your home to you, it's the place you've raised your kids, you made your memories, you remember painting that wall. So it's the most special place to you and it's worth a lot of money to you. If you're buying a place and it's your first purchase or your third purchase, you know, it's probably one of the biggest investments you're going to make in your life. So it's very emotional. Everything about it is emotional. Um, From the second you walk through the door, you know, the emotion that you feel when you walk into an apartment kind of stays with you. And I think from the listing side, you know, I always say to my sellers, that first impression is very, very important. Um, From the buying side, you know, it's like dating. You see apartments and you like this about this one and something else about another one. Um, and it's very hard, you know, to make a decision, especially say they're in different neighborhoods about where you want to spend most of your time. People take things personally. Um, and when you negotiate, brokers take things personally and you kind of have to just manage everyone's expectation and keep your cool. And I think, uh, it's very easy to lose it in this business.
0: Um, final two questions for you. What do you think the market's like this year? And nobody knows, right? Yeah. But like, what do you think? What do you see?
1: I wish I had a crystal ball. <laughs> me
0: too. I, would just
1: I think I think it's um, it's a weird time for you to ask me this question on February twenty second because it's still early, right? Um, I think it's a buyer's market, and I think people are kind of at this moment waiting on the sidelines to sort of see. I do think there's going to be a lot more inventory coming to the market in the spring. So I think sellers are waiting on the sidelines and sort of planning what they want to do and seeing what other things around them are selling at to try and understand what they they could get. And I think buyers are taking their time. Nobody's jumping they're sort of saying, there'll be more. If I don't find what I'm looking for right now, I'll just wait. Prices are coming down. There'll be more. Yeah,
0: then that goes to the psychological component of this. We have a lot of deals now, and they're all hairy. And by hairy, there's issues, right? This person wants this, and this person doesn't want that. And it used to be a very clear cut. So, for instance, new construction, when we were doing those, yeah. there was no contract negotiations whatsoever, and... You know, The seller um, made sure that the buyer paid transfer taxes and the attorney's fees and everything else. Now it's not happening as quickly, and mm-hmm. it's softer. And it's the same thing with sellers who think that because their neighbor sold their place for 2.3 a year ago or two years ago, they should be able to sell for 2.4. And no matter how many times you tell them, look, it's totally different, mm-hmm. right, this market's different. Um, you guys have to manage expectations and and that's not an easy thing to do. So it should be an interesting year.
1: I think so too. And I think the people who price their apartments correctly will sell their apartments. And I think buyers, regardless of what's going on with the tax reform and people's understanding of the tax reform, um, if you've made a decision that you want to buy and it's going to change the way you live your life, you're still going to buy. Um, You're not going to let a specific amount of money in tax deductibility dictate whether or not you rent for the next 10 years if your future is in Manhattan. Um, So that's what I tell people. And, you know, sellers got scared and they said, well, are buyers still going to buy now that they're not going to be able to deduct this money? They are. I mean, that's reality of it. So I think the $1 to $3 million market, the sub $2,000 a square foot, is still active and still moving. I have tons of buyers who are in contract now, and, you know, they didn't bat an eye. I mean, right. it's not really going to affect them. And if it does, it's minimal. It's not going to affect their decision not to do it. Um, but I think sellers are, are in for a rude awakening. I think that they need to realize That just because last year, even 18 months ago, their neighbor sold for a record-breaking price that, you know, if they really want to sell, they're going to have to adjust to the market. And the market tells you, you know, what the price is. Offers tell you. Exactly. Exactly. That's the other thing. You know, the stock market is booming. Um, And at what point do you look and say, well, what goes up must come down? And if that's the case, you know, when that happens sometime later this year, how's that going to affect everyone's portfolios and what they do with their money?
0: Yeah, it's all interesting. And I I think that frankly, no one knows per se. I mean, there's indicators of what's going to happen, but uh, you brought up a really good point in that if you buy, you're buying to live somewhere. You're not, I think people, because it was so, the market was so hyper over the past five years, people were just generating, creating so much wealth that they forgot um, that, you know, the main purpose that you're buying is not necessarily just to, you know...
1: Own a piece of property. Right.
0: It's to live somewhere. It's your lifestyle. It's your lifestyle, right, And right? the, the neighborhood that you live in, et cetera. And I think specifically in New York, people outside of New York don't understand this stuff, Correct. right? But the market, because it was on steroids, for better or worse, you had people... You know, I tell the example, I live in Williamsburg, um, and the building... Um, Across the street, people were buying units for $600,000 in 2007, 2008, and they're selling for 1.6. Like They created a million dollars' worth of wealth from Mm -hmm. just living in the place. Mm -hmm. And so because of that, you're clouded from seeing that, oh, this is a place where we had our second kid, and the schools are fantastic. And I think maybe one of the byproducts of a market that stabilizes or isn't quite as hyper is that people will begin thinking more about, do I want to live here versus – can I make $600,000 over the next three years or so? So maybe that's a good thing.
1: And I also tell people, like, there's no reason to panic. The market was on steroids, so now it's just normal. Yeah. It's not down, it's not crashing, it's just normal. I mean, I was lucky enough to come into the height of the market and I felt it on steroids. And it did feel like this is crazy. It didn't feel like... This is everyday normal activity. We were getting bidding wars after one open house, and now you sort of have to work for your money. Now it's taking a little bit longer, and you feel like, okay, this is normal, you know? So I don't think it's a negative. I mean, I think the uncertainty part makes people nervous. Um, Obviously, I wish it was on steroids forever, but... Me and you both. It's not realistic.
0: Right, it's not. Renita. Renita. Thank you. This was kind of awesome. Thank you. Thanks for, uh,
1: for coming by. I'm honored that you uh, wanted my opinion. Stop this nonsense. <laughs>